And now I will introduce today's special guest. The New York Times calls him unflappable. Well, to do the things that Jeffrey Immelt does, you pretty well have to be unflappable. For close to eight years, he's been the chairman and chief executive of the world's second largest company in terms of market value. But a huge net worth is just one of GE's truly remarkable achievements. It's one of the world's oldest and most successful companies, founded by Thomas Edison 127 years ago, making it a contemporary, actually a little older than the Canadian Club of Toronto. Last year, GE generated nearly $21 billion in profit and ranked sixth on the Fortune 500. With over 300,000 employees in more than 100 countries worldwide, its range of business and interests is staggering. Technology and energy, medical imaging and healthcare, media and broadcasting, business and consumer financing, and the list goes on. With all that business activity going on under the GE banner, you can understand why the chairman would have to be unflappable. Something could go wrong at any time, but under Mr. Immelt's leadership, things mostly go right. Like the other eight General Electric chairs who came before him, and even his own father, Jeff Immelt is a company man. He's been with GE for practically his whole career. Starting in Connecticut in 1982 in the corporate marketing department, he worked his way through some of the company's biggest and most strategic businesses and product lines. In 2000, he was appointed president and CEO. Then when the legendary Jack Welch stepped down in 2001, Mr. Immelt was chosen to succeed him. Jack Welch, now that's a tough act to follow. But he took it on, along with all the pressure, visibility, and high expectations that shareholders and Wall Street could throw at him, and a good test for flappability. Today, things are changing at GE, the same GE that for years essentially wrote the book on managing progress and change on a macro scale in business. Under Mr. Emelt, GE is reducing its ecological footprint and becoming a more engaged corporate citizen when it comes to climate change, cleaner energy, and better health care and quality of life. Those are tall orders, especially in these economic times. But when the New York Times said Jeff Immelt was unflappable, they also said he was the right man to run GE in this era. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in extending a warm welcome to Jeffrey Immelt. Thank you very much. Helen, I, I'm, uh, I'm not going home. That sounds, uh, sounds pretty good. So thank you. It's great to, great to be with you. I've been uh, in Canada the last uh, couple of days. I was in uh, Montreal yesterday in uh, uh, Ottawa this morning and now in Toronto and visiting with government people and customers and things like that. So it's great, great to be here. It feels, it feels better in Canada, I have to say, than, uh, than the U.S. So uh, congratulations on that anyhow. It's, uh, it's a slightly better mood. You know, we don't let anybody in GE joined for-profit boards. We, we've always had that philosophy and we've always felt like that was a good way to run the company, but we encourage people to join not-for-profit boards and be active in the community. And uh, four years ago, I decided that my not-for-profit uh, assignment would be to join the board of the New York Fed because I thought, <laughs> I thought I'd learn a lot and it would be easy. Um, well, I can say I've learned a lot. You know, the, the easy part hasn't been there. So uh, we're living through a doozy right now on a, on a, on a global stage. The uh, 
credit crisis that really started in August of 2007 uh, broke in to be a, a full outbreak uh, in uh, September of last year, and the financial system in the U.S. and many parts of the world really uh, ground almost to a halt. And, and so the financial system has really been under stress. Uh, following behind that is uh, growing unemployment in most of the developed world. Uh, you've seen the U.S. numbers last week. We've seen them in Canada. So we're on our way to uh, some, uh, uh, you know, higher unemployment than what we've seen in decades. Uh, we've had massive deflation in equities, uh, property, other markets that have made consumers feel poor, consumer confidence. Is at, uh, is at an all-time low. And those three, three things kind of coming together have left people feeling in a, in a dark mood, have left people concerned, and that has taken place on, across multiple geographies on a global basis. I would say sitting here today kind of uh, five or six months into the deep crisis and more than a year of having experienced the, the, the real change in credit cycles, there's a couple things that make me feel a little bit better. One is the, the capital markets are starting to work again. Uh, unsecured debt, uh, uh, commercial paper, you know, there's some lending going on again. So some of that appears to be starting. Uh, the second thing I would say is that uh, commerce on a global basis, you know, in, in other words, there's no such thing as decoupling. I think we've all learned that. But, but you do see people ordering. You see uh, countries like China that are still investing. And so I do think the global nature of the economy does make it uh, feel a little bit better. But, you know, we're wrestling with as tough an economy as I've seen. Americans tend to mark these economies based on recessions that they've seen. And so most economists that live in the United States are kind of to 1974, 1975 as being what this recession feels like. If you break through the 1974 and 1975 comparison, you end up back in 1929. So, you know, we're kind of hoping that we hold with the 74-75 comparison. But no matter how you put it, we're in a, we're in a very difficult uh, cycle. Uh, there's plenty of people blaming plenty of other people. You know, what, what, what caused the issue? Clearly, some of it is just uh, uh, too much credit, too much leverage. And you see that in the U.S., you see that in the U.K. It tends to be an Anglo-driven phenomenon, but, but some of it's just too low interest rates, too much leverage, and you see that, you know, kind of working its way back through the system. And places that had more conservative banking systems like, like Canada have turned out in a better spot. Uh, some of it blame greed. You know, it's almost like there are eight guys on Wall Street that did it all. Let's find them. Let's, let's put them in jail. Let's do something to them. And, and clearly there was mistakes, human error, greed, that lay at the center of, uh, of the problem. Uh, some people blame regulators. You know, were the, were the regulator, was there enough regulation? Was it, was it in the right places? And we're going to end up in the United States with, with different and changes in financial regulation, and I think that's appropriate. So all of those things entered into it. And I would, I would add another, particularly for the United States, and, and I'll come back to this in a little while. I, I just think the, the premise under which the U.S. economy was working for the past 30 years was just wrong. This notion that, that a big economic power like the U.S. could go from being an innovation and manufacturing power to being a pure service economy that led to financial services earnings as a percentage of the S&P 500 going from 10% in 1980 to 45% in 2007, turns out that play just didn't work. And, and so I, I think 
you've got to mix them all up and say there's a little bit of blame to go around more broadly. And in order to kind of get out of this, you're going to have to fix both short-term and long-term issues. Uh, the government is the Calvary, right? Right as I stand here. I would say most of you would have probably been better off listening to Tim Geithner's speech today than Jeff Immelt's, but you're stuck here today. So, you know, uh, the government is working hard and fast and diligently to, uh, to correct this, not just in the U.S., but globally. That work is coming in, you know, kind of three major buckets. One is to fix the financial system. And so you've got TARP 1 and TARP 2. And, and, uh, and again, I think the government is committed to continue to do the things that it needs to do in order to get the financial system right. And by right, I mean both have financial institutions that are solvent and strong, but also lending money again. And so the ability to do securitizations and structured finance and getting some of these assets off people's balance sheets, that's important. The second element in the United States is going to have to be somewhere around housing and housing prices. Uh, whether we like it or not, this is core to getting consumers back in the market again, making them feel secure again, and so there's going to have to be something ultimately that goes direct to consumer and housing prices. And the third thing is stimulus, and the stimulus package is going to be, you know, you can read about it in the newspaper every day, somewhere between $800 billion and a trillion dollars. It's going to have tax opportunities. It's going to have state funds. It's going to be directed towards energy and health care and things like that. But the combination of those three things are all going to be important. But you know, I think one thing that we've learned, you know, those of us that have been veterans of this battle, let's say, is that uh, big, fast, flexible. You know, in other words, uh, the government's had to move in big ways. Doing it t in a timely fashion is more imp important than being 100% right and learning while you go, because there's just no playbook for what we've seen, what we're wrestling with. And so those three things are very important as the government activity takes place, and not just in this week, but in the coming weeks and months as we get through this, uh, this financial crisis. The last thing I'd say about the world, and I, I think this is really important for all of my colleagues in the business world, is that this is, this is a cycle. You know what, I, I've been through cycles. I've been through the 80-82 cycle, the 90-91 cycle, the 9-11 cycle, the 1997 cycle. I've been through cycles. If you think this is only a cycle, you're just wrong. This is also a permanent reset. There are going to be elements of the economy that will never be the same, ever. The financial systems are not going to bounce back and be the same as they were. The role of government as partner, as regulator, as financier. This is not a two-year phenomenon. This is a secular change. This is a decade, decades-long change. Uh, the impact of liquidity on industries. You know, even once liquidity returns, how many cars will exist and, and, or will be sold when there's just going to be less credit available, which is going to be a steady state of something we're going to have to wrestle with for years, not just six months. So the smart businesses are ones that are going to hunker down for the cycle, which you've got to do, but also understand that we're going to come out of this in a different world. And that's not a six-month, 12-month phenomenon. This is a decade two-decade long, there, there are things that have happened in this cycle that are going to be permanent or feel like permanent, and those are, the, those are the changes that have to be made. So, you know, again, both managing the cycle and planning for what the change is going to mean is really going to be, uh, going to be important. So in that regard, what I thought I'd do today is maybe give a couple reflections, one on, you know, what it feels like to run GEO, uh, being the CEO of GE, Second, what it, what it feels like to be, run a company today. 
and the third thing, maybe just a couple of reflections on how we uh, how we look at Canada. So, you know, with that as an environment, you know, we we run a big company, and when you're a big company and lots of cross currents going on, man, you, it, it is it is a challenge. You know, it's uh, I remember uh, Lehman Brothers week, right? Going. Uh, Lehman Brothers went down on a Monday. AIG was on the patient's table on Tuesday. On Wednesday, a money market fund broke the buck, right? So I come home, and, uh, uh, and I get in bed next to my wife, and it's 3 a.m. She says, hey, honey, don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. And I said, honey, it's great to be home, but I'm not so sure, you know, really. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know exactly what's, what this is going to feel like. I mean, it was coming out of you know, fast and furiously. And with that, you know, gee, still, we, we were $183 billion in revenue. We earned, you know, revenue was, uh, was up 6%. Our earnings were a little bit over $18 billion in 2008. We had our third best earnings year in history. Uh, we're in financial services. Financial services was a tough neighborhood. You know, nobody liked anybody in financial services, particularly investors last year. We earned $9 billion in financial services, more than any other financial service institution in the world last year. And our industrial earnings grew by 10%. So we, we managed our way through it as best we could, you know, despite the fact that anybody in financial services had a rocky, you know, had a rocky path in 2008. Almost 60% of the companies outside the United States today, and, and again, that helped buffer us from some of the worst volatility that we saw in the U.S., and I see that as a trend that continues. And so financially, we were able to, you know, remain, retain our financial strength, our focus, but it wasn't without, you know, going through some really choppy waters with a company our size in a year like 2008. I think when you think about this environment, you know, I, I think about a couple things in terms of what I do at GE, but also what anybody in this room can do. You know, and, and I think, uh, you know, Canada's a little bit more stable than the U.S., but they're not bad rules to live by anyhow. You know, the first one is uh, what you learn is that at your core Every company, great companies, have to be safe. And so, you know, we, we kind of went through this cycle and said, what's it going to take to really make sure that the company can be safe no matter where this environment goes? We had $15 billion of cash on the balance sheet at the end of the third quarter of 08. We've got $60 billion of cash on the balance sheet as we sit here today. So really dramatic changes in, in safety, dramatic changes in cash, strength of balance sheet, uh, taking leverage down, you know, just looking through a number of things we needed to do to make sure that we had planned a very conservative outlook, we had taken the right steps to strengthen the balance sheet, and that, you know, at, a t at an economic cycle like the one we're going through, uh, financial strength was just going to be key. And so, you know, first and foremost, I think when you're going through a cycle, uh, um, cash, cash flow, low leverage, conservative outlooks, that is key, and that's number one, what we try to do. The second thing is we change the cycle on everything. You know, I, I would argue today there's no such thing as a meaningful quarterly meeting. You know, there's just no such thing. You know, if your cadence was quarters, it now should be days. It should be weeks. So we basically have in, increased the cycle time of information, decision-making, uh, focus, intensity, uh, and, and we are reviewing some things on a weekly basis, maybe a few things on a monthly basis, and we don't have anything that's called a quarterly meeting anymore. Speed, decisiveness, cost, uh, all those things are so, you know, critical anytime. 
but particularly critical when you're going through the kind of volatility that we have today where, you know, really if you ask me, hey, Jeff, what do you think the world's going to look like in six months? My true answer is, hmm, you know? I'm just not quite sure. You know, it's, I've, we've seen so much. So what we really have to do is have a point of view and then, and, then, and then come with it. Third thing, don't blink. Don't blink. You have to sit back and say, what do I still believe in? What, what, do, I, what do I still fundamentally believe in? And, and I would say in GE, you know, we fundamentally believe in three things. You know, the first one is the strength of the emerging markets, the strength of globalization, and that that is an unyielding force. And that despite the fact that the U.S. economy may be weak right now, the Chinese aren't going to tr stop trying to get hundreds of millions of people into the middle class. The Indians aren't going to stop trying to get hundreds of millions of people into the middle class. Countries that have excess cash flow, uh, based on raw material pricing and things like that are going to keep investing it. And so, you know, we kind of sit down as a team and say, what do we still believe in? The first one is the primacy of globalization marches on. Marches on. And if anything, I would contend, gets more important. And then and that I fundamentally believe that by the year 2025, there will be more commercial aircraft in China than there are in the United States. I still believe in that. So I'm going to let that guide our investing when I look at the future. The second thing I believe in is I've lived through all these cycles, and I've always seen that the company that continues to invest in technology and innovation doubles down through the cycle, always wins. Always wins. After 9-11, let me tell you, you know, you know, people hate financial services today. A lot of investors come and say, gosh, why are you, why are you, why are you in financial services? Well, because we are, you know, that's, that's a good reason. We've made a lot of money over a long period of time. On September 12th of 2011, it was horrible to be in the commercial aviation business. Nobody on earth wanted to own aircraft. Nobody wanted to be in the commercial aviation business. But we invested a billion dollars in 2001 in R&D, in commercial aviation, in 2002, 2003. And we came out of that cycle with more market share. We came out of the cycle with better competitive position. So the second thing we, we sit around and talk about and believe in is that if you keep investing in technology and innovation in the worst times, your competitive advantage grows. And in our case, that's going to continue to be in places like uh, clean energy, healthcare, infrastructure. You know, we will continue to be the best infrastructure technology company in the world. The third thing we believe in is uh, now's the time to swarm our customers with as many innovative ideas as we possibly can. I mean, the one advantage we have as a company is we've got products, we've got service, we've got financing. And if we can bring those three things together for our customers at this moment in time, we're going to win friends and partnerships and relationships and build that strength for 5, 10, 15 years. And so we have to continue to do the things to protect the future and, and focus on the future. So play a little bit of defense, speed in everything we do. Decide what is a company you still believe in and double down and then the fourth thing I would say is manage the reset. Manage the reset. We look at financial services and say, you know what, our financial service business is just going to have to be smaller. It's not that we were bad in financial service businesses, but it's just going to have to be smaller over time because there's going to be less unsecured debt, there's going to be less uh, uh, opportunities, and there, there's going to be low, potentially lower returns. So let's not cry about it. Let's not, let's not gnash our teeth about it. Let's get on with it. Uh, aligning ourselves with governments and government stimulus. 
you know, I, I'm a, I'm a, uh, have grown up a Republican, uh, small government man, you know, uh, like a lot of other CEOs. But the fact is, is that governments are going to be investing an incredible amount of money over the coming decades, not just in the U.S., but globally. And we need to make sure that we know where the governments are investing and are aligning our technologies to be up against that. So really understanding the reset, not being afraid to take the company into a new direction around the reset, that's important. Then the fifth thing I would say is continue to motivate the teams. Communicate, dialogue, stay accountable, touch as many people as you can, don't cancel meetings, just, just you know, keep out public in front of your employees. You know, I can't tell you how many times in the fourth quarter of last year I would love to have canceled an employee meeting because of today's crisis, right? And, and almost every day in the month of September and October were crisis-filled. But the touch time, the focus, the communications, the honesty, the candor of saying, yeah, here's what the circumstances are, but here's where we're going. We've got a plan. Let's keep going towards that. And touching employees and motivating employees is absolutely critical. My speech to G employees is, this is why you were put on earth. Anybody could manage in 2004. Anybody could manage in 1999. Anybody can manage in easy years. This is really why you were trained. This is all of the background came to you so that you could be a great GE leader in 2009. We could have anybody around here all the other years of your career. This year we actually need you. We actually need you at your best. We need you to be strong. And this is why, so that's, that's my only motivational speech for today. So people are key and, and that's how you get through it. So I think we'll come out of this a stronger company, but it's not without a lot of hard work. Shift gears. What do I think about the world? You know, in other words, you know, I'll, I'll speak from an American perspective, but, but you may have some of the same connections in terms of uh, what's on people's minds. You know, because I would say people in the United States are just angry. They're just completely angered at how we ended up in this position and, and, and how it all works. And so when I, when I think about what business and government have to do together, particularly in the U.S., but I think it also pertains to Canada over the next, let's say, 18 months, tw 24 months, the next few years, I, I, I break down a couple of things. The first one is you've got to rebuild a financial system that works. And in the U.S. is going to have to rebuild a financial system that really works for everybody, if you will. It's got to have liquidity. It's got to have rules that are understood, probably with one common regulator across the system. We're going to have to have a lot more transparency. You know, the, the notion that people were underwriting transactions, CDOs or CIVs or CLOs, that they themselves didn't even understand and were being compensated to sell them broadly in the economy, that just has to be beaten out of the system. And if we have to lose a little bit of innovation or if we, if we, if we have to add some cost while we're doing it, so be it. That's not what capitalism was meant to be. And financial, you know, what we've all learned is that without a strong financial system, without a strong financial services system, that doesn't work. Number two, we've got to make financial services subservient to the broad economy and technology. You know, we evolved into a financial service system of proprietary trading that just entered a world in and of itself. And I think ultimately when we come through this, we're going to have a financial service system that really does underpin a broader economy. And that's what's got to happen in the UK. I think it's what has to happen in the United States. It's got to happen in other places as well. 
As part of that, places like the United States have to reinvigorate technology and research development and, and the number of engineers that are in this economy. Uh, you know, our R&D as a percentage of GDP has declined every year for the past 25 years. The percentage of kids going to college in the U.S. getting engineering degrees is 4%. Uh, you know, those, that arithmetic doesn't work. So at the same time, I think we're reforming financial services. There has to be a consistent effort to reinvigorate the innovation, technology, and manufacturing base of a country like Canada or the United States or the UK or other places around the world. The two have to go together. If you're going to reinvigorate your industrial base, it probably ought to be designed around uh, things that are going to be solving bigger social problems. And in that regard, you know, when you read a stimulus package, that's what I think President Obama has tried to do or other stimulus packages uh, around the world. It's oriented towards clean energy, energy stability, I would say. I think energy independence probably isn't going to happen, but energy stability, reforming health care access and cost through information technology. But I, I do believe that more of the research and development or more of the public-private partnerships are going to be placed around core industries or core problems that can make economies stronger. And so clean energy, affordable health care, initiatives around education, these will be the future of uh, technology. And again, that's where we're investing, but that's where I expect a lot of people also to be investing. We've got to embrace the power of globalization. You know, um, uh, Buy American just doesn't work, right? I don't say that just because I'm in Toronto. I say that because it actually is true. And, and we can't use this time of reform and this time of technical innovation to be also a time of protectionism. And, you know, I think that involves a couple elements. One is kind of free and fair trade. Uh, one is to make sure that we've got good trade partners like Canada but the other one is I think American business people, business people around the world, have to be mindful that while they globalize, they can't completely abandon their home markets and have to be mindful that their actions around their own employees in any corner of the world, but particularly their home, get watched by all and have to be accountable for that. We've got to have accountability in CEOs. You know, it'd be easy for me to stand here and say, or to stand in front of my employees and say, you know what, this was a brutal, nobody predicted the liquidity crisis. Nobody predicted the crisis we're in today. Nobody got it right, and therefore it's all okay. I think that's a horrible attitude. I think we all need to say we should have seen it. We shouldn't have gotten there. We should have done better. Here are the reforms we're going to make inside our own companies to do better. And people are just crying out for accountability. People to stand up and say, you know, I'm responsible. I'm going to take a nick in my own compensation. I'm going to, I'm going to t take these uh, actions to make sure it doesn't happen again. And people are just crying out for accountability. But I, I really do believe all of these things ultimately have to be packaged in the same breath. You know, in other words, it doesn't do any good to reform the financial service industry unless you're going to replace some of it with an industrial headset. It doesn't do any good to have the finance industry reformed with an innovation headset and not solve some of society's biggest issues. 
It doesn't do those top three things without having a view of where it fits globally. And it doesn't, do, uh, it doesn't work to do all those things without having an accountable business community that can help drive change. And if that's the way the world goes, towards more structure in financial services, more innovation, uh, uh, more focus on solving global problems, GE is going to be at the head of the line. We are ready to participate in that changed economy by being innovative, but using the size and scale of who we are and what we, what we have to do to be able to be a strong participant in the future. And I look forward to those changes. Now, Canada is a home game for us. We are uh, about $7 billion in revenue and about uh, 9,000 people in, uh, in, uh, in Canada. Uh, almost all of our businesses are, uh, are located here. I would say you know, the three big roles that we play in this economy are, uh, have to do with how we access or how we support our customers that are in the natural resource industry, primarily in the western part of the country. We've got high-tech manufacturing in Canada around the aviation industry, the, uh, the oil and gas industry, and, and we are a net exporter out of Canada, so we've got very strong manufacturing. And we've built a nice financial service business that uh, has done a great job of lending to mid-market, uh, lending and leasing type uh, uh, operations in Canada. We've got great customers here, whether they're in the aviation industry or the healthcare industry, and we've been a strong participant over a long period of time. Uh, the future of Canada, you know, we really still believe is bright because of the natural resource base and a high-tech manufacturing base. It's got to be built on those two pillars, and they've got to be balanced in some, uh, uh, some way, shape, or form. And we see that in our co uh, company, and we see that as a relatively uh, uh, bright future. You know, in the end, I'm optimistic about where we are in the world. I'm optimistic about uh, what we're going to do. I think it's choppy right now, but the only people that can really get us through the short term are all in, and that is, uh, in many ways in the U.S., it's the government. And so my view, having watched over a long period of my career, the government always wins in these battles. The only dimension is time. And if you pump $2 trillion into the U.S. economy, it is going to right itself at some point in time. And you know, I, my, my sense is that around the edges, things are starting to get better. We still have some difficult times ahead, but, you know, I, again, I, I think, you know, when I ask myself what I believe in, I still see some powerful growth drivers uh, out there around globalization, innovation, and some of the things that, uh, that can take place. So I always appreciate your support of, uh, of GE and, uh, and, and very much appreciate uh, your uh, customer support, the, the government here. You, you make, make us feel uh, very welcome, and you can count on us uh, over a long period of time. So what we decided to do, rather than, we're not logistically set up for questions, but, but, uh, but at our table we voted on three questions, and so I thought I'd just, uh, I'd, I'd just answer those a cappella, and then we'll, we, can call it, uh, we can call it a lunch. Uh, the first one is, where is oil prices going? I'd be long oil right now. It's, it shouldn't be as low as it is. Uh, it probably should never have been at $150 a barrel, uh, but where it is today is probably too low, and I base that on two things. One is um, the primacy of demand, particularly driven in the emerging markets, is still out there. And, you know, I, I've been in China and Asia. 
they can't go back. You know, in other words, you know, you can read in the press any given day that China's, you know, losing jobs or India might only grow 6% versus 8%. But if, but if you're the government of those two countries, you cannot go backwards. It is not an option. It is not a choice. So if you believe that it's not an option, it's not a choice, that there's going to be hundreds of millions of people that are new drivers in the world today, oil prices are going up. And if you believe that depletion rate is, you know, declining by 7% a year and new fines are going by 2%, the arithmetic doesn't work. So I like your odds on oil, really. I, I, I like your chances that ultimately oil prices go somewhere up. I don't know how, how high up, so I'd, I'd be long on oil. So when we, we had a long conversation about healthcare, uh, healthcare is really fascinating, and I think we're going to enter into a new era in healthcare. Since the Great Society in the 1960s, the U.S. has been the technical leader, if you will, in healthcare. It probably can no longer afford to be that. And so I think what you're going to see is opportunities for places like Canada that have, you know, what I would call kind of a mainly social system of healthcare, but a, but a technology-based social system of healthcare are going to be much more interesting places from an innovation standpoint, from a healthcare growth standpoint, and therefore, you know, the, uh, the importance of, uh, of, of where the healthcare industry goes from a technology standpoint is going to grow, I think, in Canada, and there might be actually jobs created in Canada around the healthcare industry. It all revolves around four things, and how do you do them all at the same time? It's quality of health care. It's efficiency of health care. It's access. You know, do poor people have the same access as rich people? And it's outcomes. And how do you balance those four things? I know in my lifetime, many cancers could be cured. I know that diseases like Alzheimer's are going to be treated in my lifetime. In other words, there are great things that are happening in health care, it's just how do you afford it, and how do you make it fair? And whoever figures all those four things out simultaneously, this is still a great industry and one that uh, ought to be core to every great uh, country around the world. And, and the last one is, is uh, protectionism. You know, and again, I, I would say uh, we all need to do our part to make sure free trade doesn't get a bad name. Uh, you've got President Obama here on February 19th. You've got to do your part on, uh, on Canada to make sure that we've got a, you know, a, a, good, uh, a good integration. And, and the trick really is, you know, how do we convince the citizens of our countries that globalization works for everybody? And that's a function of both communication, but it's also a function of fairness. And when the bottom 25% of the population's income declines every year in a country like the United States, globalization is going to get a bad name. And so we've got to be mindful of the kind of jobs we create and make sure that it's fair. And then by so doing, we're going to, business is going to have to earn its right to globalize. It's not going to be granted to us. So thanks for lunch. Great to be here. As the CEOs of your companies, you are more needed today than at any time in your career. And, and uh, manage the cycle and the reset. And if you can manage both of those, your businesses are going to be better. That's certainly what we're trying to do. Thanks very much. Thank you. I, I'll call on Irene David, to, uh, director of the Canadian Club of Toronto, to thank Mr. Emelt officially. Thank you, Jeff, for speaking with us uh, today. 
and thanks to all of you for joining us. With so many companies struggling, trying to find new ways to survive, it's encouraging to hear that GE is relying on basic values and first principles and counting on doing the right things right to see it through. I'm sure after hearing him here today, no one is surprised that Jeff has been named one of the world's best CEOs by Barron's three times. And a fourth is probably in the horizon. In no small way, part of that was due to the way you're able to engage the people you work with and get them excited about working with you. You're also known for having introduced a new era of outreach and collaboration at GE, new ways of working together that once again you'll no doubt lead the world in embracing. So listening to you today, it's clear that you care deeply about your company, what it does and how it does it. That caring by you, by GE as a company, and especially as a group of people, is why it will continue to be a world leader. On behalf of the Canadian Club, thank you again. Thank you, Irene. Thank you again, Jeff. And thank you to all of you for joining us today. This program will be broadcast on Rogers TV. And this brings us to the end of our program. This meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>